Welcome to another episode of the Faculty Chronicles, a podcast where we speak with Merida College faculty members on important issues that are impacting our campus or impacting our world. And this is our first Faculty Chronicles podcast of the 2022-23 academic year. I'm your host, Tom Perry, and today we are pleased to welcome Dr. Katie McDaniel, who is a McCoy Professor of History and earned her PhD in British History from Vanderbilt University. Katie is a faculty member in Merida's History Department, and today we are speaking with her about the recent passing of Queen Elizabeth II and the future of the royal family. Katie, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. Sure. Well, we're going to get right into it. We have a couple questions here we want to ask you. And the first one is simply just to get your reaction or, you know, not only, uh, you know, the people of the UK have had to come to terms with the, with her passing, but also the world is sort of reacting to this. Um, can you explain why this is such a such a big news story? Well, first, I have to confess to you that I'm not myself a royal watcher. I think of them like celebrity figures, and I figure, you know, we here in the United States, we fought a war against them, so we don't have to care about the British royals. However, like that said, this is obviously a really significant event, and it is, as you said, being felt in ripples throughout the entire world because, of course, the British Empire was so large, and they still you know, have a lot of relationships through the British Commonwealth of Nations, which is an organization of former, co formerly colonized territories and people. And so, uh, although I'm not myself a monarchist, long live the Republic, Tom, right? <laughs> so we should hopefully as Americans, uh, you know, value democracy. Nevertheless, this is an event that we, I think, really do need to try to figure out. Queen Elizabeth's reign was incredibly long. It was 70 years. It spanned enormous changes in the British Empire and Commonwealth. She uh, was queen for 15 prime ministers with Winston Churchill at the beginning and just within the last week or so, Liz Truss most recently. And something like, just to give you a sense of her importance, something like one third of Britons have dreamed of the queen and I guess usually it's they're having her over for tea and chatting about, you know, what to do about you know, kids today or something. And so I think that shows that she's been, been very personally meaningful to a lot of people. Now, for me, I've been really interested to see how people are coming to terms with what her passing means for Britain, for the UK, for the Commonwealth of Nations. There's a real variety of opinions, and a lot of them are in conflict with each other. But I'm seeing a lot of serious attempts to reckon with how we should understand the passing of someone who is not simply a woman or even a political figure or a celebrity, but somebody who embodied the nation, a nation with virtues and also quite serious flaws. Emotions are very high, and this is just a moment fraught with meaning, a wide variety of meanings, actually. And we historians, we love those kinds of opportunities. Well, you just hit on it. I mean, you know, 50 years or, you know, you know, the amount of time she's, you know, 70, 70 years. years, sorry, 70 years. I said 50, 70 years, uh, 15 prime ministers and all those things. So it's, um, you know, you're, there's few people of us alive who have known someone else who has been the head of the royal family, you know, has been in that position. Uh, so this transition that's happening, um, you know, so... You know, is that part of the intrigue for people is, you know, being able to see something they've never seen in their lifetimes take place? And, you know, for, you know, what are, I guess, what are you most interested in seeing or hearing during the transition of, of, the, of the royal family? 
There's some statistic that's something like like 90% of the world has been born since Elizabeth has been, you know, uh, up at the top there at, in the UK. And so, as you say, it's a unique moment for most of us in our lifetimes. And what we're seeing right now is a lot of pomp and ceremony. These are events that have been planned for a very long time. It's not a surprise that Queen Elizabeth passed away at the quite ripe old age of 96, you know, so this has been in the works for a long time. And it's been carefully designed to be watchable. It's supposed to be a public spectacle as a means to bring a lot of disparate people together through the shared mourning of her death and celebration of her life. And they're trying to also make moving on to the next reign as seamless as possible. Of course, any dynastic family wants that to be a seamless transition. Historians talk about monarchs having two bodies. There's Elizabeth the person, the mother, the grandmother, the great-grandmother, the dog lover. But then there's also Queen Elizabeth II, the embodiment of the nation. She was really expert at the second, being the face of the state for so many years, for a lifetime, really. In fact, one of the complaints about her that you hear, Tom, is, who was she? Like, what does she really think about any of this? Historians would love to know what was really going on in her head, uh, you know, when she's dealing with Margaret Thatcher, for example. That's one of the things we wish we knew more about, her, her hidden thoughts. But she was unknowable about not just political matters, but actually a lot of personal matters, too. She kept hidden that other, more personal body, which was contained very rigidly within her own private life. But she excelled at being the public face that was without individual opinion or even maybe personality. That was actually, it was important for her to keep the, you know, the individual person of Elizabeth more under wraps. She, as the public face of the nation, could represent the values of Britain without being particularly controversial. She has that stiff upper lip stoicism, the pragmatic heroism of World War II, a kind of old fashioned social grace, dignity, sense of duty, and this was broadly appealing and generally unifying in the way that traditions of the state often are. And so she performed that as a very important public role. Much of the transition that we're seeing right now represents mourning the loss of that queen's body, not the individual person. A lot of folks appreciate the ritual and ceremony of it all. And if you think about funerals, they're designed to be that way. And of course, a funeral of a, a person who represents a nation is going to be highly ritualized in order to soothe and reassure people in a timeless way. It's an expression of consistency, continuity, the hope that what was comforting about the past will continue into the future. Now, on the other hand, Queen Elizabeth's death quite literally marks the end of an era. Some commentators have emphasized her long reign obscured quite deep changes in the UK, in the former British Empire, in the British Commonwealth of Nations. And without her as a public unifier, what will the UK even be anymore? We've already seen some small dust-ups with protesters who want to dissolve the monarchy and see a British Republic develop in its place. And I'm interested to see if protests mount the further we get from some of these initial ceremonies. And then there's the transition to the reign of King Charles III, not the most popular or beloved of the royals, although I actually think he gets a raw deal. He seems actually kind of okay to me as those things go. But protesters have declared, not my king, and have been arrested for disturbing the peace because of that. Uh, someone nearly got arrested for yelling out, who elected him? 
as an American, I quite like that. But uh, they don't have the same sense of freedom of speech over there. They don't have an amendment about that. Uh, of course, the royals are also very rich, and they're not going to. They don't get taxed in the same way, and they won't have to pay inheritance taxes on these inheritances that they're getting. And it's difficult economic times in the UK, and so I expect this is bound to be controversial. And this transition offers people a chance to advocate for change at a time when the UK is experiencing serious economic, political, environmental, and social problems. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what are the new ideas that take root. And so during the transition, I wonder, what will Charles's reign be like? Can he keep it together? What would keeping it together even look like? And would that be a good thing? Maybe devolution, the fragmenting of the territories of the UK, maybe that's desirable. The other two King Charleses before him ruled in quite troubled times in the 1600s, uh, in which England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, they were not easily united. And in fact, they engaged in violent civil war that, let's just say, did not end well for the first Charles and was not that great for the second one either. But the rule of those King Charleses also paved the way for stronger democratic apparatus in Britain and gave the foundation for modern democracy that, of course, North Americans ran with and produced the United States. So I think we can see there are lots of fascinating potentials that exist here. And I'm interested in this new Carolingian age. Perfect. Um, you hinted at this a little bit, so I want to take it a step further. You know, the uh, we've seen this here in America. Uh, since her passing, you've seen it around, you know, maybe around the world as well. But the monarchy itself and uh, the history it represents is not always universally beloved. Um, True. We saw that in a tweet from a Carnegie Mellon professor and others who expressed their lack of empathy at her death and the day of her, uh, the day of her death. Uh, as someone who has studied and understands the impact of British colonialism, can you explain why there are people who felt this way at the time of her death? And, you know, it seems like it would make a lot of sense and you can understand where they're coming from. And while some of them were shunned, you can probably help us understand why they were so quick to, to speak out. Well, Tom, I think this idea of the Queen's two bodies is a way to help us to understand, for example, the Carnegie Mellon professor's tweet and other people who, if they did not exactly wish Queen Elizabeth II excruciating pain, wow, they were nevertheless cynical or dismissive or gleeful or just even indifferent, callous about it. To express these sentiments about Elizabeth Windsor, the mother, grandmother, the little old lady with the big handbags and the cute corgis, like that's cold and cruel and it's so heartless, right? We obviously would think that that's not acceptable. However, it is important to remember that the Queen was the face of the British Empire, a political entity that committed serious atrocities against colonized people, appropriated their wealth, denied them political agency, promoted racism and discrimination that persists today, enforced the British will through violent control and even genocide. And this was not just things that happened before her time, but things that happened during the course of her reign. What's interesting about the British monarchy, of course, is that the queen is not herself particularly politically empowered. I think Elizabeth was probably a good resource for information, just especially because of her longevity. But she's not making these policies. These are not her particular policies that created the misery for colonized people. But she embodied the state. And not just in the more positive ways I mentioned before, but also in these damaging acts that have not been sufficiently repented, amended, or, as we can see, forgiven. In 20, 
1911, Queen Elizabeth successfully navigated a visit to Ireland. The Irish have been long, long oppressed by the English. And that was a very successful visit because she was able to soothe some of those wounds, at least for some people, through a variety of public actions, graveyard visits, ceremonial displays. These performances can be really important. And she was as expert at that kind of statesmanship as I think anyone could be. It's her life's work, and she was just brilliant at it. But over the course of their history, the British simply walked off with a lot that was precious to a variety of people in Asia and Africa especially, much of which is still in Britain. I don't know if you've seen the story about the Koh-Noor diamond, which is in Elizabeth's crown, and there's some idea that maybe she should return that to India or Pakistan. Um, a lot of people died and were terribly oppressed in the name of the British Empire. And so it's not a surprise that when people think of Queen Elizabeth as this other body, as the state itself, they're angry and they're bitter. And they're going to put that all onto her and see in her death the much desired death for British oppression worldwide through its empire. And they're going to see this also as an opportunity for something new and different on the horizon. Now, I'm not interested in telling people how they're supposed to feel about Queen Elizabeth's death. But I just hope that, especially in the United States, when we do care about free speech, that we can talk to each other about the variety of reactions that people have and the conflicting meanings that we're ascribing to her passing. Perfect. Well, you have given so many great answers. I feel like my my next question you probably have touched on a lot, but I want to give you another chance just to to add to you know the the legacy of, of, of Queen Elizabeth and and you know it's for those listening. You know, there's a lot of folks who don't always may not understand the impact and the in you know a, what a 70 year reign really looks like and what it means. But can you you know what else can you say that would help them understand just what that era? looks like and why it is so important and why it has such an impact today. As you suggested, one of the most important things about Elizabeth's reign is simply its length. Think about all that's changed in the world since 1952. It's really amazing, right? But she was remarkably consistent through that whole period. She's a persistent face for the UK worldwide and for people at home. And thereby, she allowed a kind of 1950s nostalgic ideal of Britain to live on well into the 21st century. And her refusal to reveal too much about herself as an inner person, her total commitment to public life, a life of service and duty to the state, even when other members of the royal family behaved very scandalously, she seemed to stay above the fray. And she could, as a woman, represent the mother of the nation. She was not unlike Queen Victoria in that regard even when the political role of her position as queen was much diminished and diminished even further over the course of that long reign. Her graciousness and poise, her ability to display some amusement about herself, I think people will remember the very fun clip where she was with Daniel Craig, who was James Bond for the London Olympics in 2012, and it looked like she was, you know, parachuting into the arena. Uh, you know, she was... Uh, she was able to participate in jokes about herself as a public figure. She had incredible patience with long and boring public events. 
She had a clear mastery and control of media appearances, her ability to speak to the nation in troubling times in ways that used simple words that were nevertheless poignant and profound. All of this points to how amazingly well-suited she was to be queen during this long span of time where Britain's actual power, influence, and affluence have been steeply on the wane. She kept monarchy going and culturally central probably long beyond when it should have crumbled. Now, in some ways, the sheer consistency and persistence of Elizabeth in that role was a, a sort of reassurance that Britain was not changing that much, that whatever happened in Britain, right, she's still there. An Atlantic article talked about how the queen has been referred to as an enchanted glass, I really like that <laughs> phrase, in which people could see the best of themselves when they looked at her. But that's a kind of illusion, and that illusion is now fading now that she's, she's gone. And Charles is not going to be able to fulfill that role, partly because of when he's inheriting. He's a 73-year-old man, and we already know a lot about him, maybe too much about him, right? <laughs> partly, Charles lacks a lot of these qualities that Elizabeth possessed, and so it's hard to see him as that other king, the one who will simply but fully embody the state, and I will anticipate your question, Tom. I don't think William will be able to do that either for those people who wanted to just skip over Charles, which, of course, you don't do. Uh, but William, I don't think, has that, that uh, in, ineffable quality that Elizabeth had. As somewhat mysterious and seemingly able to obscure her personal self for public service, Elizabeth successfully acted as that reflective unifying force, even for those who didn't really love her. And I think even people who didn't think she did very much during her reign, she's just this archaic relic of an earlier age, I think even they will see that her presence was a kind of cultural glue without which, I mean, who knows? What is next on the horizon? We historians, we like to talk about events that have already occurred, so I won't speculate. But I think there are per perhaps some interesting, surprising things coming in the future. Well, thank you. Um, last question, and I, if you've ever listened to one of these podcasts, I sort of end it the same way every time because I think it's important as Merida College, as we have students here and we're educating them. I'm curious if this has come up in your classes here of recent, of recent days. Have the students asked about it? What's going on in the classroom in, in, in regards to this topic? Well, I didn't have students approach me particularly about it, just I'm not in that particular period in the classes that I'm teaching. But I did have a colleague who said that he, uh, he's Joe Sullivan, who teaches the Shakespeare class, and he said he had like three students rush up to him, right? The end of another Elizabethan age. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, kind of eager to talk about what it meant. But in my capstone class, uh, where we're talking about, you know, the importance of history and how history works, we have been talking about the difference between academic history and what's called social memory. And social memory is sort of how a society thinks of its past. And it's not necessarily the same as professional academic history. It's mm -hmm. not always very accurate. And so you get historical distortions. And uh, one of the historical distortions is nostalgia. And I think that she was even in her time able to represent that historical distortion of nostalgia. And also uh, another one of these distortions we talk about is invented traditions. And invented traditions are these, um, are these ceremonies that are, uh, or even kind of ideas about your history that 
are used generally to create a sense of unity within a, a group, and they're very, very important for the nation state in the modern world. And we all have invented traditions, and a lot of them are very mythological and not actually tied into actual events. And a lot of the pomp and ceremony that we're seeing is not actually that old in Britain. Uh, a lot of it comes from the Victorian era. And I've, you know, we've talked about it in our class in terms of, you know, why do we not only create these traditions, but then try to root them way back in the past, much farther back than they really are. And it's because it gives a sense of stability and legitimacy. And so I think a lot of what we're seeing right now is the kind of competition over these invented traditions that are supposed to be providing stability and like, don't worry, the British monarchy is still here. And also we can see that they're, they're, you know, they're struggling to keep the nation together. And as historians, I, we talk about this in my class, our job is to know what is the, the myth and the invented part of the tradition and to understand that these things are not just natural and that a lot of times they're, they're being used for a particular political purpose. And so I think these ceremonies that we see and all of this talk really fits in well with our discussion about the understanding of history and the popular consciousness. Well, perfect. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Faculty Chronicles. And thank you to Dr. McDaniel for sharing her insight with us today. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Marietta College, please visit www.marietta.edu.